welcome to Girls on the Peace, your weekly ski fits with Emma Woodward and me, Bella Syme. This week we talk to you about the infamous Cresta run in St Moritz with the two fastest ever record holders in history, the president of the St Moritz Tobogganing Club, James Sunley, and the Olympic bobsleigh racer and current record holder of the Cresta, Lord Clifton Rottlesley. Find out why Clifton is called the Dark Lord because he wears, as he rather delicately put it, a rather large black condom. We also hear from Emma what it is like to work in one of the top chalets in the Alps. And lastly, we discuss the recent avalanches and extreme snow conditions in the Alps and answer some of your questions about avalanche safety. Emma, why is your hair looking like a lion? I think I'm turning into a recluse. I just I never see anyone anymore. So yeah, it's it's all got a bit it's all got a bit peaked. A on. lion recluse. Actually, but you're lucky you've got the thickest hair ever. I'm so jealous. Mine is like a thin little straw and yours is like this amazing. You actually could be oh my god, you should go into hair modeling. I don't think so. I look completely mental at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely mental. Yeah, it's been a bit of a bit of a long month this one. Happy Friday. Nearly over, nearly February. Oh my god, I literally, what the hell is going on? Also, we see each other so much normally. I haven't seen you since before Christmas. Wait, when did you? I know, I was thinking that. Like, it's, yeah, we usually see each other so much in the office, and it's just, it's weird not seeing you all the time. How's your week been? After we recorded last week on Sunday, it was like the gods answered my prayers. (laughs) Um, whatever the expression is, the it snowed, but it didn't snow with you, and you're half an hour away from me. It's so weird. I'm so jealous. <laughs> also, you cracking me so, up. <laughs> obviously, that snow. I know. I was so happy. I woke up. I came down. Rue was already up. No, no, I lie. I got up to woke up, and I just you know you look at the window and you think, oh, is it another fake? hope it's frost and then I opened the window and it was snowing and I literally was like oh my god it's snowing I was like a four-year-old child I was running around in my pajamas doing this like it's snowing it's snowing snowing (laughs) snowing dance in my pajamas we thought I'd lost the plot honestly it gave me this new lease of life I went skiing I went up I went from my garden whacked my skins on up the south downs tried to get as high as possible it was like snow slash grass but it was enough to slide and I just basically went on my own with Toffee my Labrador for those of you that don't know so nice honestly it really like I needed it it uh, three hours I went for on my own until I ended up in Butser Hill, which is like not very close to our house. And I was like, okay, I'm done now, Rue. And then he had to come pick me up. Come pick you up. <laughs> I just got lost. I think I saw a picture of your like next door neighbour or something who had, um, if you took, took a picture, no, your next door neighbour put a picture on Instagram, basically, of you touring past the window. You look so funny. It's like Bella's lost I know. the plot. Also, I think most walkers in Hampshire don't didn't understand that I had skins on. So I think they literally just thought I was walking around in my skis, which was even worse. <laughs> they were like, oh my God, you're going to hurt your skis. Yeah, they were like, what are you doing? You can't like, what are you doing? Anyway, it was a bit quite funny. <laughs> How good was Jojo's fitness session? Yeah, I realised I haven't actually seen anyone except my um, parents on Christmas Day. So 
that's the last other people I saw apart from my husband, which is a bit weird. So I was like, oh God, I really need to see some other people. So it's so nice to do. We did, yeah, we did a fitness session with um, our friend Jojo on her Insta Live on Wednesday, which was fun. Nice to see a smiley face. So that perked me up. Yeah, just doing his exercise, basically. Will and I were saying, actually, it's possibly the fittest we've we've ever been because we're so bored. It's quite annoying we can't go skiing right now because if we went skiing, we'd be like smashing it. You and Will go on the, what's the word? You are, you and him are prolific walkers. You're so good at walking. You're dog walkers, prolific dog walkers. Yeah, we do a lot of walking. Just the weather's fucking shit at the moment. So we're um, not doing so much. But yeah, we do do a lot of, a lot of walking around here. But it's then you have got Cocker Spaniels. Yeah, they've got a lot of energy. <laughs> Bodie doesn't walk anymore, bless him. Aww. This is our 15-year-old border terrier, as Emma knows. And, and, and so he either goes in a rucksack on Rue's chest or just stays in the <laughs> house. Him. I know, it's so funny. And then Toffee, obviously, is a, Matt got so bundles of energy. She's a puppy. But, you know, you can never get as much energy as a Cocker Spaniel. Although, having said that, our Spaniels are so lazy at the moment. It's like they're hibernating. Hecky and Stat, they, they literally wake up at like 11.30 and you have to drag them outside. If it's raining, they're just not interested. They're being so lazy. I don't know what's going on. It's quite funny. Oh, really? On the plus side, it's Friday. It's sunny. And January's nearly over. Yay! Um, question time okay so we've had some great questions sent in thank you very much so uh, we've been asked about um, there's been a lot in the news this week of course about avalanche safety with the snowpack being as it is and so much snow there's been some tragically a lot of avalanches in the Alps we've been asked where can I learn more about avalanches where can I train for going off you know going off piste okay so Yes, there have sadly been a number of fatal avalanches in the last few weeks. Even yesterday, there was an avalanche in in Val d'Isere on the road between Val d'Isere and Tien, which uh, four people, three of the four people got caught up in. Three were fine, got out straight away. And then the fourth, this is, for me, uncomprehensible. He was buried for over two hours. Now, that's normally dead, but it's absolutely amazing he he survived. I mean, just to give you some stats on on avalanches and your chances of of survival. Okay, so the first when I was doing my 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 training and my exams, you get assessed on how quickly you have to dig out two people in under eight minutes. So, and and not only once you've found them, you then have to dig them out too. So you get your probe, you find them, and then you dig them out with your shovel. So, and they could be spread out across, obviously, in different parts of the avalanche. And of course, when you do your process of, of going down to find them, there's a system you learn. You know, if you miss the first one and go straight to the second, imagine hiking up in concrete rubble from an avalanche you just it's important anyway eight minutes is quick so you're after 15 minutes of being buried if you if you're found within 15 minutes of being buried there's a high chance you'll be alive but it goes downhill dramatically very fast after 30 minutes after if you're buried for more than 30 minutes under 30 percent of people will survive so the fact that this guy 
was a lot. I mean, his heart, his re, his heart rate when he was dug out was thirty something. Really, and his, you know, the the chance of brain damage starts that your brain can start to deteriorate after being buried for ten minutes. Anyway, I, I haven't heard any more, but the main thing is, is he was alive and breathing, which was incredible, just. You know, an avalanche is a terrifying thing. And, and the thing is that people don't realize is most people will die from head trauma hitting rocks or uh, trees in an avalanche slide, right? So, you know, a lot of people are instantly killed, even though they're buried. Whereas this guy, I mean, look, amazing. Anyway, at least that was good. But yes, yeah, so not to... out, like probing, weren't they? I've seen pictures. It's like... Yeah. So, exactly for people who don't know, when there's a big avalanche like that in a ski resort, all of usually you're on it. They have a list, and usually it's the, all the instructors in resort or people that are trained in avalanche training and avalanche rescue. And they, you all get sent out and you get this alert, this text, you're all connected on phone, you get this alert, the ski schools will all get sent them and then you get it pinged onto your phone and you all have to grab your stuff and go and you have hundreds of people lined up walking in lines to try and find the person as quickly as possible. That's if it's an avalanche and resort you can access. Um, yeah, I've done it a couple of times in Verbier, but false alarms. So they'll do trial ones where they'll randomly do a test one in a quiet week pre-Christmas when not many people are in resort. And they'll send on that because they'll want to test everyone and train everyone. And if any ski schools, the people don't come, then they get seriously, you know, told off by the gendarme. Anyway, I'm digressing. So... Um, in answer to the question about how you can train and how you can get safety, learn about safety, Avalanche, transceiver parks, Avalanche training parks in, in every ski resort, you just need to find out where they are. And they'll have pre-buried packs, which you can find. Uh, but I've always just gone off to a, a quiet area off-piste, churned up loads of snow, buried rucksacks with transceivers inside, dug them deep. Because, you know, you must remember... You could be two, four meters down as well under the snow and then got people practicing and taught them the system and how it all works. But, you know, you've got to learn about the safety. It's one thing buying all the equipment and carrying it, but it's another thing knowing how to use it. Mm. I mean, when I was was working in Verbier, I would take clients as we before we went off piste every day, I would go around the group and get them to ski past me with their transceiver so I could test if it was on. Because it's no good asking people in the group, is it on? You've got to test it. Yeah. So everyone would come past and there were a couple of times where I would say to a client, I'm only getting, I'm not getting almost down to point two on your chest when I'm testing if you're at your transceiver's on. And they'd say, no, it's on, it's on. I'm like, I can see it's on, but why? And they go, oh, it's in my rucksack. And I'm there going... The rucksack will be ripped off in the avalanche. Your jacket will probably be ripped off. You've got to wear a transceiver under your first, yeah, first layer, first thermal, whack it on. And then you put your layers on top because you'll get stuff ripped off. You know, your arm might. Anyway, so it's, you can't be too careful. Is there like any rules about like topping up your training? Is there rules about you like being on top of it or do you just take clients out when they? I think it's each person's indoor dependent responsibility really and I think everyone needs to kind of be sensible about it I I make Rupert learn everything through me and I have at the start of every season I'll take him out and make him do a few minutes of and I'll do it myself 
because if you don't if you because... go with someone who's not you know up to scratch then that's your your risk and, and their risk it's like it's, it's putting the whole group at risk Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it's all very well, me having four clients with me and me knowing how to dig them out. Mm. But what happens if they're all, yeah, what happens if they can't dig me out and they're all on top? Yeah. So, or or say I was dug and I was under, buried, and two of their mates were. And so it was only two of them in the group that were above and they didn't know. They can't go, Bella, will you just dig yourself out and help us find our mates? No, you've got to know how to use it. Uh, there's also training courses. We'll we'll add the link to this pod. There's training courses in the UK that you can go on as well to learn. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a group, it's everyone's responsibility if you're going off piste to be, you know, everyone be on the same level of of, of knowing what their what their role is. Really, people find it scary when you start talking about it, and they think, "Oh God, are you gonna, surely you're just not going to take me to an avalanche prone place." You know, even the most experienced guides, you just don't know. You can't be too careful. Mm-hmm. You just got to. We've just got to raise more awareness as a. In the yeah. World. Do our husbands ski? No, are they good skiers? <laughs> okay, Ems, tell me about Will. Who's better? We're very similar. When we were first going out, we didn't go skiing together for like a year or something, year and a half. And Will was like, "I'm definitely going to be better than you, but faster than you." Like, it was always, always fast, isn't it? With with boys, who's the fastest? Yeah. I was like, yeah, whatever. We'll do a race. Anyway, we went skiing together the first time. And we are pretty much identical. I mean, I'm probably a bit better, but... (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) um, No, we're we're actually really similar skiers, so it's really nice. That is really nice, because then it's such a nice thing being able to ski with your husband. Yeah, similar style. Similar style of holiday. We like stopping for lunch quite a lot. That's quite nice. (laughs) What about Rupert? Okay, so Rupert, when I first met him, he had already planned a ski holiday with our with his great friend Harry Jennings, right? So they come out to Valdez. Uh, it so happens we just started dating, and it so happened that I was in Valdez at the same time, coaching, teaching. I can't. I think it might have been for New Gen, and so I they were a morning lesson, and then I I left my my clients and I went up and met them at the top of the hill. Anyway, the I think, oh, God, these boys, they're going to, you know, you can just see the way they carry their skis, the way, what they're wearing. I'm like, they're such punters. Um, so we get to the top and we ski down and then, and then, and, and Rue's like, yeah, I mean, I basically ski like James Bond and I'm there sort of dying inside. What have I got myself into? Who is this boy and who is his friend? Harry's like, yeah, basically, I mean, he's pretty confident guy he's like yes Bella I am a technically perfect my skiing is technically perfect I'm like oh yeah right yeah I did a season once and um yeah I'm really good I'm like oh god and all he does is talk about saloon bar and how he loves getting shit <laughs> so I'm like okay anyway so we get to the bottom and just after Ruse told me he skis like James Bond and I just I just don't know what to do with myself I mean, you've got full banana going. You've got legs clamped together. You've got hips being thrown in. (laughs) You've got hips being thrown in left, right and centre. And I just think, oh my God, where do I start with this boy? Anyway, to be fair to him, he's now actually, I mean, he's been with me for what, 10 years. So he's he's had a lot of coaching. Yes. And he's actually a super strong skier now and he loves the backcountry and we can, we've done a trip to Iceland together and, and he, he now loves the off piece and he loves his ski touring and, and, and so we found a happy medium, but he mm. is, yeah, that first trip was 
a disaster. <laughs> Our guests today are the two fastest record holders of the Cresta Run in St. Moritz ever, ever in the whole wide world, in history of the world. And we are very excited to talk to these two legends. Mm. So, Ems, you went to St. Moritz last winter, which I was so jealous about. Wait, was that your first time there? Yeah, this time last year, or just before. Yeah, we were in St. Moritz and kindly got invited on an agent trip by Badger's Palace, which was absolutely amazing. I've, you've been there a lot, haven't you, Bells to St. Moritz? Yeah, do you know what? My whole family, like my parents, my grandparents, were big St. Moritz goers so because they love it so much I guess I've always felt oh I want to you know Mm. so yeah I love it there but whenever I go there I don't end up skiing very much (laughs) it's just one of those resorts it was amazing it's just it's a bit like a fairy it's like no other resort that I've I've experienced it's it's a bit like it's like a sort of fairy tale or something it's just they've got what 300 days of sunshine a year so it's just always sunny there when we were there it was constantly sunny had the best days skiing, amazing ski area. It was just not busy. We had such lovely lunches, just some really cool experiences. It was just such a great, great time. It was three days, but it was unbelievable. Yeah, I remember you coming back saying you had the best time. Didn't you try that ski jarring ski thing joring. as well? <laughs> yeah, like ski yoring, I think that's how you pronounce it. So, um, God, we're terrible at pronouncing, aren't we? Yeah, skiing behind horses. And we stayed in Badger's Palace, which was insane. And the, the lake was just freezing over, ready for the before the polo all starts, the amazing polo tournament they have there every year. And we did the... The toboggan, the famous toboggan run, which is like Preda Bergen, which is Preda Bergen, Preda Bergen. I've done that. It's mega. Yeah, but it's so fun. That was great. Do you know what? I always think of St. Moritz as a true, real winter resort. Yeah. It's not, you know, isn't it? You've got, I mean, it's also glam. Everyone's glammed up to the nines, strolled up to the nines. St. Moritz to me is a true winter resort. As you just said, you've got the snow polo, you've got the uh, white turf, the horse racing there, which yeah. is super cool on the ice. That lake's amazing. Mm-hmm. The iconic Badgett's Palace, the Cresta Run. It's it's beautiful, and it's kind of like if you imagine like an idyllic sort of. I keep saying fairy tale, but a perfect ski resort. That's basically what it kind of is, isn't it? Hopefully, I'll go back there one day. I always describe it as I'm. I always explain it as it's Bond Street, but with snow. Yeah, that street isn't it with Prada, Chanel, Montclair, Ralph Lauren isn't it it's that row of like is that opposite the palace yeah yeah it's it's so seriously smart we went caviar tasting (laughs) hilarious did you yeah yeah Badger's Palace thank you for showing us a wonderful time so cool you stayed there I've only ever stayed at the Coombe I haven't stayed at um the palace it was beautiful so Cresta facts, Cresta yeah, catch up, so Cresta, Cresta description. 
So for those of you that don't know what the hell we are talking about, we're going to describe the crest of the bob, the luge and bob skeleton for you. So on the crest to run, the rider goes down as an individual on a toboggan in a lying position head first, using rakes on the end of special boots to brake and steer. So basically the, the rakes are just like, for the listeners, the rakes are basically just sharp things at the end of your boots that just dig into the ice to help slow you down so on bobsleigh runs riders go down in pairs or teams of four in a metal capsule on runners one person steers another operates the brakes and the riders go down in a seated position for the luge riders lie on their backs on a toboggan feet first they ride on bob runs and luge runs both singly and in pairs in the bob skeleton individuals ride head first as on the Cresta, but they do not use rakes and they ride on bob runs. So this week we are honoured to have two of the best Cresta runners ever known in history joining us for a chat. James Sunley is president of the St Moritz Tobogganing Club and is a 16 times Cresta run record holder. And Lord Clifton Rossesley holds the world record for number of classic races. Hang on, <laughs> is that wrong? It lasted for 16 years. Ah, sorry. Uh, 2015, when um, I muscled in on the act. Yeah. yeah. Lord Clifton Rottlesley holds the world record for number of classic races won and was the first person to beat the 50 seconds barrier on February the 1st, 2015. In doing so, he now holds the world record. Clifton is also a skeleton racer and finished fourth for Ireland in the men's skeleton in the 2002 Salt Lake City Winter Olympic Games. These two have battled against each other over the years to reach victory on the crest to run. Around the world, there are circa 14 bob runs, the oldest and only one made of natural ice being in St. Moritz and only two natural ice luge runs. There is only one crest to run for three quarters of a mile at speeds of up to 80 miles per hour with their faces inches from the ice a group of thrill seekers take on the world's toughest winter adrenaline rush the crest is unique and it remains one of the last truly amateur sports so welcome james and welcome as james described you as to me mr dashing the dashing clifton <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, James. What was it, James? The, the younger, more dashing version of myself. Yeah. But... It wasn't even myself, actually. It was certainly the more, the, a more dashing <laughs> version. But also, 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 as you now know, he's called the Dark Lord. Yes, which I, I can't wait to hear more about. <laughs> yes, to start off, please, could you just tell us a bit about the Cresta for those who might not be familiar with it? So like the way it works, what you wear and the formalities and the main challenge for riders? Well, as you've already said, it's a three-quarters of a mile ice-long toboggan run on which you go down head first. There are two starting points, one by the clubhouse, which is where you would start when you're a beginner. It's called Junction. And unfortunately, because of the weather, that's, uh, sorry, because of the COVID, that's the only place that we're riding from this season. And then as you progress and you get better, you can ride from the top, which is the much steeper and faster part of the course. There are 10 corners as you go down. The big difference between the Cresta run compared to, say, the Bob run is that the corners are open. So if you were to let a curling stone go down the Cresta run, it would exit, actually would exit probably the third bank. Whereas if you let one go down a Bob run, it would go all the way from the top to the bottom. So the Cresta run very much needs riding. Bob won't get down by itself. 
And yeah, I mean, the the, the worst thing about the uh, riding the run is actually is the rider himself. I mean, it's it's all down to his skill or her skill now, to some degree, get down. And it very much requires it's it progress. It, it takes practice makes perfect, as Clifton will tell you. And it's like most sports, it's all about balance. It's not completely about just being crazy, actually far from it. You have there's a lot of a lot of thought in working out the different lines. Uh, um, as you go down and the toboggans have no steering mechanism which is also they're two solid steel runners the last four or five inches of which are fluted into sort of a point and you move backwards and forwards on the toboggan depending on what part of the course that you're you're on yeah i could go on but i mean it's 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 fundamentally it's head first down an ice run uh at an average speed when Clifton broke his record, he would have been averaging 58 miles an hour from top to bottom, and he would have actually exceeded 82, 80 miles an hour at the bottom. And then can we jump, Clifton? I'd love to talk to you about the Olympics. Headhunted by Tony Wallington, um, who was the PD um, British bobsleigh, and uh, he was looking for, for people who he thought could read ice, so hence why he came, I think, to, to the Cresta. And he said, well, well, you look as if you know what you're doing. Um, come and sit in the bob. So I sat in the bob for a season. And towards the end of the season, went to Eagles in Austria, which is supposed to be the easiest track in the world. Yes. Uh, ended up turning it over three times in a row with um, poor James Nash, Jim Nash, sitting in the back, who was Tony Nash's son. Tony Nash being um, of the infamous pairing um, Nash and Dixon driver. And the gold medal in, in Innsbruck. So you flipped it three times. So 64, exactly. He was the driver. Yeah. Um, and uh, poor Jim um, that was turned over. In fact, he was turned over four times, three times in a row. And uh, yeah, being the wag he is, he decided that he'd get stuck on the side of his helmet, um, the crash test dummy, <laughs> which is that sort of uh, yellow and black. You know why his father was so good, Clifton? Uh, go on. Because he was blind. He was, bl- he was blind. But he, he was very, had very bad eyesight. And it meant that he okay. never reacted. Well, because he just didn't um, get the fear. Well, no, he never overreacted. Because the thing about the bob is really weird. Because I, I do quite a bit of monobob, well, a bit of monobob these days, is less is more. It's so different to the Cresta. And it looks like a sort of really brutal sport. Uh, but the driver, you know, having done his sort of sprint at the beginning, He's then got to be completely calm and do things actually very slowly. And if you yeah. overact, that's when you get into trouble and start things. And actually, same on the crest, it starts corkscrew. But yeah, I know, uh, Tony Nash was blind as a bat. Yeah, well, I think that was probably my problem, is that I, I overdrove it in a bobsleigh. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so so anyway, I ran out of talent fairly quickly. And um, But I happened, while I was in Innsbruck, to have a go on a skeleton sled, which is very similar to um, a, a Cresta sled. Mm. Cresta had one or two runs and, and thought, oh, this is fun. Anyway, having run out of talent, went on um, on bobsleigh, went back to the Cresta for a season, and then they made Skeleton Olympic. Right. Um, that, so I thought, well, I know how to drive a Cresta sled. Maybe I can turn my, my hand to um, a Skeleton sled. So uh, towards the end of, of, of that season that I was back on the crest, I went to a, a skeleton school in, in back in Eagles. You'd think that I'd um, once bitten twice shy. But anyway, I, I got <laughs> and managed to get down top to bottom, enjoyed it, and thought, oh, well, 
I may as well make a go of this. So the next season, which was the 2000-2001 season, sort of signed myself up for a skeleton school um, in Eagles again, and uh, and then out in Calgary in, in Canada, and then started uh, on. I joined the skeleton circuit. It was on the sort of lower, the lower tier, um, the second division. And, and sort of progressed from there, went to the World Championships in, in Calgary at the end of that year, and then it was into the Olympic season. But I basically did two full seasons of, of, of skeleton. Um, I had a bit of a head start because of, because of Cresta, but it was all because I was useless at, at bobsleigh. What fun. But so are we, am I confused then? Why did I think you did the bobsleigh at Salt Lake City for Ireland? No, I did skeleton. Did skeleton uh, okay? So you mentioned why did you transfer from why did you transfer from GB to Ireland? Ireland. Well, basically because GB um, wouldn't have me, so they had a team already. In, they had three experienced sliders, um, as they call them on on the skeleton, uh, on skeleton. But they basically said they didn't have room in the team. Um, I, I think I was seen as this sort of um, slightly affable playboy, and and they thought well. We're not going to spend our time, effort and resources in trying to get this guy up to scratch. So the only route that I had was through my Irish heritage. So um, I got myself an Irish passport, having been born there. Went knocking on the door of something called the um, Irish Bobsled and Loser Association. They didn't know anything about skeleton. I, I sort of said, can I, can I do skeleton for you? And they went, what's that? So I knew I was pushing against an open door where that was concerned. And uh, yeah, so hence... Ireland, not GB. So, because um, James, you knew Roy Seal, right? My great uncle. You knew the name. I He's did. No, I, yeah, I did. I mean, and he, he was a donor of one of our golf trophies in particular. The Roy Seal trophy. It's enormous. Oh, wow. Well, thanks, Uncle Roy. Yeah. Because Robin, yeah. cousin Robin, his son, did the Innsbruck yes. 64 Olympics in the Bob as well, Clifton. You know, you were talking about the Nash guys. But he was in the four-man brilliant and they wow. didn't get place but anyway this is why i'm like is it in my blood do you think one day i can do crasper <laughs> anyway we will see um, in fact ems you did the taxi bob in well i did the taxi bob when i was last in st moritz but ems you did it in um where were uh, you i was in um I, we had the salt lake city like you know i was in park city last january last february i think it was and we did the the bobsleigh olympic track That's absolutely what? terrifying but what you have to understand is that these two natural tracks in St. Moritz, uh, yeah. there's the Crest and the Bob, all, I mean, Clifton will correct me if I'm wrong, but all bobsleigh drivers, it's their favourite track. It's much smoother. The artificial tracks, because of the rivets and the way that concrete's put together, are much bumpier. Is that right? Yeah. Between the concrete sections, and, and they can sort of knock the hell out of you, particularly actually on a, on a skeleton sled. But you're right. I mean, it, it's the sort of the, the magic and the mystery and the, the allure of St. Moritz, number one. Number two, because it's the only natural track in the world. And as James said, it's super smooth. So, no, it, it, it's the mecca, as it were, of, uh, of, of, of ice tracks. Can we talk a bit about well, the 1st of February 2015 when Clifton took the new record? James, was that the worst day of your life? Or? No, <laughs> no, no, far from No, far from it. <laughs> no, I'll tell you why. Um, that was the worst day of my life. <laughs> um, because, and it was interesting, it was a Sunday, and, and normally the classic races are on Saturday. And we, um, against Clifton's inclination, we moved, we, we had the handicap race on Saturday that year, the first. Why is it uh, well, because you want to go out and party on a Saturday night. 
And that particular Saturday night, you couldn't. Anyway, the, the, it, was a, it was clearly, it was a fast run. And I was actually standing on the top of the clubhouse um, when he did it. And it was completely controlled and very sort of, um, what's the word? Uh, um, um, very safe, solid, sort of perfect run. But it gave my record some validity because after such a long time, people say, oh, well, the track must have been shorter. Because bear in mind, it is different every year. It's a bit like the Derby racetrack. I mean, right. it's the same course, but, you know, the conditions are a bit different. And that sometimes the, say, shuttlecock is probably, shuttlecock might be six foot longer some years because the radius is bigger, you know? And so it does vary. And so when you call it a world record too, it's a, it's a slightly spurious, because it's really the fastest time in any given season is the most important thing to achieve. Right. Whereas, you know, obviously the, all these artificial bob runs, they can, they can measure to within millimetres. And Clifton's chairman of our run and safety committee, and he has now, the track has now been measured so that if the guy who builds it disappears under the proverbial bus, we can, we can reasonably well copy it. But it is, it, it, there are small, subtle differences every year, and some years are faster years than others. So what, what they, you start quite early in the morning, no? Am I right? The beginners do, yeah. Um, if you're a beginner or an, or an SL, what's known as a supplementary rider, so a non-member, um, you've got to turn up early in the morning. Um, and that's basically because the members really would rather not turn up in the, in the morning. So there's a... But you get a, the shit slots, basically, as a beginner. Why SLs sometimes are called shitless riders. But um, they are... The, the, that sort of two-hour period between eight and ten is the sort of sweet spot for, for um, beginners and SLs. And then the members will turn up at about 11, uh, 10, 11 o'clock and get their sort of three or four rides in. It can be an early start when you're starting out. Um, and that's one of the, I suppose, one of the benefits of, uh, of becoming a member, because then you don't have to turn up quite so early in the morning. And the season, does it run, is it January and February mainly for the... Kind of Christmas Day, we open just before Christmas Day, normally with the university event. Yeah. Um, which has actually become a really fun event. There are about sort of 16 to 18 universities. British across Europe, and then we kind of the last first weekend in March. Mm. And uh, lots of things. February half term. There's lots of social events and things. Yeah, and... that's that sort of peak week. Yeah. This season it would have been it's kind of a changeover week, and actually it's the uh, AGM and our Grand National would have been sort of a week later. Where normally that normally it's around Valentine's Day, but this year it would have been nearer the nine, I think the nineteenth. Moving on to outfits, uh, Clifton, tell me about this black number you own. <laughs> yeah. So, James, you'll remember back in 2008 at a committee meeting, one of our fellow committee members, I produced a paper for um, the, the committee essentially saying, listen, we've got to try and stop technology um, taking over the run because of it, it being an, a, an amateur sport and Corinthian spirit and all that sort of stuff. And the committee, um, in their infinite wisdom, eventually decided that actually um, we weren't going to stifle innovation and we were going to um, essentially let a sort of a complete open open house as far as, uh, as technology was concerned. Anyway, this one particular committee member um, who's well known to us, who's nicknamed um, Heavy Metal, decided to sort of challenge me and basically said, Clifton, you know what, I don't believe that technology is going to be um, what you think it's going to be, um, I don't think that you could ever beat um, James's record. So I rather took that um, to heart. Uh, and I spent the next probably sort of two or three years 
thinking about the things that I can um, develop to make myself go faster. And one of them was um, the suit, the infamous suit. So aerodynamics, I thought, played a really big part. And I went off to a lady in Derbyshire who makes all of the speed suits for um, British cycling and the canoeists. And I went to, to this lady and I said, right, um, I need a, a super, super quick suit. She said, listen, you need to talk to some aerodynamic specialists. Um, so I went to um, a company called uh, Total Sim, and they do what's known as computational fluid dynamics, CFD. Oh. And the this is an amateur sport. I just remind you girls, this is an amateur sport. Amateur sport. This is, there's no messing about here from you, Clifton. I mean, wow. I, as I said, I took it rather to heart when that guy said I couldn't beat James's record. Anyway, so CFD is essentially like CAD is to architecture, CFD is to aerodynamics. Um, and they took scans of me. No! Um, <laughs> took scans of my toboggan. They married the two. They did a, a, a big model, um, i.e. an Excel, um, essentially an Excel spreadsheet, um, of, of what the, the potential time could be with or without the modifications that we were going to do. Um, and in the end, we came up with what we thought was going to be the, the, the ideal design. And that design makes me look like Darth Vader. Um, <laughs> is hence, it super thick latex? What material is it? It is latex. It's not super thick. In fact, it's not a, an original idea. So back in 1972, a guy called Bruno Bischofberger developed a, a wet a wetsuit yeah. version of exactly. He wore a wetsuit for the first time. Before exactly. just, they just wore tweeds or. Yeah, 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 tweets. But like when I used to race in skiing, you know, obviously I have my cat suit, which is just, but your, but that was just like a kind of normal suit, you know, tight suit. Whereas yours is like black, head to toe, hasn't even got a head bit. Exactly. So the Darth mean... essentially takes the airflow uh, away from hitting the shoulders. So it's a, it's a, it's a sort of direct line from the top of your head down to, down to your shoulders. Some people well, have... they... Look like a, a black sperm, but um, it uh, anyway, it's yeah, I think Darth Vader is probably closer to it. We'll, we'll put a picture on for the listeners so they can see your outfit. Have you had any bad accidents or crashes? Well, I, I've probably had more crashes than Clifton, although actually, I think perhaps in his early days, he may had quite a few. I mean, it's extraordinary given in, in a given season, normally there are about 12,000 rides, and depending on how difficult Shuttlecock, which is the infamous corner. And yeah. that's, it's the best place to fall. It, it, it's a big falling area. I mean, you know, the safety is paramount all the way down the run. But if you're going to fall anywhere, Shuttlecock's the most likely place. Anyway, in a given season, there are perhaps one in 12 falls. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for the number of falls, it's quite extraordinary how few serious injuries there are. You know, you can have a whole season when the ambulance doesn't come at all. I know that sounds dramatic, but an ambulance, you know, they, yeah. they, so Maiden Hospital is only, is only 15 minutes away or clinic good, is, is even closer. So the crest to kiss happens very rarely now because we're, we now have to wear full face helmets. But back in the day, people used to wear open face helmets. And if you if you fell off your toboggan and you slid down the run, you had a, quite a high likelihood at some point you bang your chin. And that's where the term the crest to kiss came from. Right. In terms of accidents, generally, I mean, there are quite a lot of fingers. Fingers are quite vulnerable and obviously plenty of bruises. Uh, but the one thing you want finger, to avoid, right? Is, yeah, Clifton's yeah. Yeah. Uh, the one thing you want to avoid at all costs is being hit by your toboggan. Right. Uh, you're trained 
uh, uh, because of the centrifugal forces at Shuttlecock, is that you and the toboggan will, unless you hug it, will part company, hopefully, and you'll go further to the right and the toboggan goes straight on. There is a way to fall, but, uh, but it's all part of the training that you're given. And, Roll out the way. <laughs> yeah, and, and tell us about, obviously interesting for M and I, tell us about women racing in the Cresta. Now I know historically, I think they were allowed to race from junction, like on the last day, was it the 28th of Feb or something? But am I right in saying that last year you opened it up to women being able to do it more? Actually, when the Cresta first was happening or was first created, it was very much something for Brits to do. You know, it, was, it, was, it was founded by the British. They were, a lot of them were supposed invalids who, who are in, in the mountains and they were allowed to, well, there was ice skating, there was curling, um, mm -hmm. a little bit of gentle tobogganing. And some of the girls at that time did it because their husbands or fathers were doing it. And um, in fact, ladies rode the Cresta until 1928. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yes, very much so. It's not. It's not completely new. This. Oh, and, right. And and for reasons that are frankly lost in the midst of time, um, the committee, which was rather small, I think it was composed of men, um, decided in 1928 that ladies may no longer ride the Cresta Run. Um, and. But over the years, some ladies have ridden furtively at various times, sometimes in the afternoon back in the day, uh, sometimes even at night. Um, but um, <laughs> but certainly say, on the last day of the season. Anyways, look, uh, what's the word? It's an anachronism. And frankly, most ladies aren't that interested in riding it. My wife's had five rides and frankly, doesn't particularly need to or want to have another one. No, I don't uh, think I would be too. <laughs> but um, we are a very welcoming, all-embracing club. Um, and um, and girls do ride the Cresta now, perhaps a little bit more than they have hitherto. In fact, one rode this morning, a lady called Virginie, and she fell on her second ride. Oh, two rode this morning, beg pardon. Um, um, um daughter. Okay. So it's a family club. It's an amateur club. We're there to have... You know, fun and create friendships first and foremost. I'm not saying the racing's incidental, but you know, not everyone can be a Clifton Rottersley. I know that's so true. And and so tell me, what what is it like to go at your speed, your kind of speed, uh, Clifton? What's it like going that fast? How does it feel to go down the Cresta Run? Okay, so next time you're going down the motorway, um, probably not down a motorway, down a, a, a country road, but you don't normally go down country roads that are 80. 85 miles an hour right. um, yeah. put your head out of the door and put it about an inch away from the tarmac and that's the sort of sensation that you get mm. the, the, the good thing about uh, the Cresta is that you don't have points of reference because everything's essentially white so you don't really actually feel um, the speed where you feel the speed is when you get to a corner um, and then you get points of reference because you've seen shadows and, uh, and that sort of thing. But in the straights, you really don't feel the speed. And that's where the, really the, the highest speeds are. Where also you, you do feel the speed is coming into the, into the finish because that's when you've got to start to break and you slow down from sort of 80 odd miles an hour to zero yeah. in a relatively short. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it, it feels fast. It definitely feels fast. And uh, in some helmets, if they're not sort of blocking off your hearing, you can really feel the, uh, you can hear the, the wind whistling past your ears. And tell us about the social side of the Cresta, the sunny bar, post-racing. 
Okay, yeah, I know. Well, the Sunny Bar is our, our spiritual home. It's where all our trophies are. And the link with the Coombe Hotel, which is where the Sunny Bar is, goes back to when we were first created. It was, it was a, a small pension uh, in the 1850s, Pension Falla, and um, a, a man called Johannes Badrut um, started it. And he obviously, in those days, it was a summer resort, the, or became a summer resort, um, the Engadine Valley. And it was he who persuaded the visitors to come in the winter. And in the fullness of time, it was he who was a huge supporter of the Crestor in our early, early days. He had he, his guests, he formed the Outdoor Amusement, win, Winter Outdoor Amusement Committee or something like that. Um, and he was, you know, obviously it helped his hotel business to have punters who were interested in this rather weird thing called tobogganing. Uh, and similar, the similar thing was happening at Davos at the same time. Um, and that's they they had a race back in the day called the International. And um, our we when we invited them over down our nasty little gully, ours was called the Grand National. So the whole relationship with the Coombe Hotel mm. um, back many, many years and the Sunny Bar. Yeah, we have we've had some very good afternoons there and some very happy celebrations. It's sort of, you know, after, after a big race, there's a lot of relief, I think, from many of the riders. And you bear in mind, too, that not all our races are scratch races. Um, unlike many sports, the crest run handicaps extremely well. Um, the handicap process is similar to golf insofar as you're given a time that you deduct or a handicap that you deduct from your time. So whilst Clifton may be the scratch rider, um, these days I'm quite pleased if I have a handicap, let's say two and a half seconds. So the idea being that lots of other people can, can win races or handicap races um, which I think is probably part of the secret of the whole club's longevity. It's not just for sort of 30, 30 35-year-old gladiators. Mm. So, uh, sunny bars, and the Sunny Bar has the most spectacular terrace, hence its name, Sunny, um, that looks down over the lake. Um, and Yeah, it's a very nice place. But the, the Colm also, James, they own quite a lot of the real estate, that the, the, the land that the um, run sits on, don't they? Oh, absolutely. They own um, they own the first half of the Crestor Run, um, as it happens, well, most of the first half of the Crestor Run. The second half of the Crestor Run is actually not in St. Moritz. It's in the next vi the village where we end up called Celerina. And, and Crestor, the name Crestor comes from, there's a, was a tiny hamlet called Crestor. And the Coombe also owned the land uh, uh, through which uh, the bobsleigh runs. Um, so that whole park where um, the bob Bob is, is where the 1928 Winter Olympics were, took place and the, and the early days of skiing. I mean, you know, got to remember that the first downhill events didn't happen until the mid 20s, I think. Mm. Um, just below the, the Bob Run start is the most beautiful sort of um, stadium or Bauhaus stadium, which um, Rolf Sachs has um, now converted into his home in the mountains. So there's a lot of history around the whole area between between the Coombe Hotel and the Cresta Run and the Bob Run that goes back many, many, many years. Okay, so our last question. If you could teleport anywhere in the world right now to ski, where would you go? I did go skiing in Iceland a couple of years ago to a place called Depla Farm. Oh, um, yeah. Wow. I've been amazing. there. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, unbelievable experience. However... Um, I always hate to go to the same place twice, so I'd probably want to head to Alaska and go and do um, some of the, the off-piste. Um, 
I've, I haven't done a lot of off-piste in my life, but I hear that it's it's unbelievable up there. Yeah, that would be quite an experience. Made in Rockland or, or Alaska. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> what about you, James? I've just got I've always had a very soft spot for the Dolomites uh, oh. and have been there many, many, many times. Um, but I think I'm with Clifton, actually. Um, I'd love to do some proper. I've never skied in America. Uh, I'd love to do some proper, proper powder skiing. Um, mm. the thing, being involved with Crestor is for many, many years, I didn't really ski very much because you get up early and you're, and you're sort of the crest is very all consuming. And by the time you finished a prize giving, you, you and, a, and or a lunch, you sort of go, oh, I can't, you know, and you actually, to be honest, you, you can be quite knackered. It's, yeah. it's mentally as well as, as, as well as well as physically. So, um, you know, I love the Dolomites. Food's fantastic. The scenery is wonderful. And I think the World Championships are coming up there very soon. A bit of um, skiing, powder skiing in, I don't know, Canada or the Rockies sounds fantastic. Right. <laughs> Actually, to be perfectly honest, if it snows tonight, I'll be perfectly happy going out in the garden tomorrow morning. Yeah. Amazing. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Have Bye. a great weekend. Bye. 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 Support for Girls on the Peace comes from Snowfinell. Snowfinell offers the perfect luxury layers for all life's adventures. The magic of merino wool keeps you comfortable all day, whilst temperature regulating in the coldest conditions. From fine merino base layers to slim fit jumpers, gilets for extra warmth and loads of accessories for men and women, the idea was born out of the need for layering while still looking stylish. At ensuring the perfect match for all levels of exercise. Please follow the link in our podcast description to take you to their website. Earlier, you mentioned that you went to St. Moritz last year on an agent's trip. For those that don't know, what exactly does that mean? Um, so if you're a travel agent, like ski agent, you get invited by hotels and chalets and properties in general on local fam trips so familiarization trips to go and test out their all their facilities and see you just get treated to their you know their experiences and so they can show off to you and you sell them really well to your clients um so that, that that's what that's that was which is a nice perk of the job very nice quite fun to do one to st moritz quite unusual no yeah it was amazing and it, yeah, it's just really nice to go with other people in the industry doing a similar job to you. And, but yeah, Samaritz was pretty special. So how, okay, so tell me, I'm so, I think it's really interesting for everyone to hear how you got into working in the ski industry. I've always been very interested in travel. My grandparents were very keen travellers, always going to amazing places and my granny always used to say she, if she could have done any career, she'd have worked, uh, you know, in the travel industry. And she kind of inspired me. After university, I did a ski season in Val But my friend Charlotte and I went out and we were, were chalet hosts, chefs, and had an amazing six months, met, met some friends for life, got a lot of experience. But um, it was very much like a piss up season, you know, party, work hard, play hard, all that kind of, all that kind of thing. So then I came back to London but I miss the mountains a lot. And my family are very keen skiers. My brother's a ski instructor. I was always very jealous of him being out in the mountains in Verbier. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go out to Verbier and did a season 
um, working with a company called CK Verbier, who used to run, I think it's five or six of like the top chalets in in Verbier, in the Alps, really, um, which was amazing. Yeah, I mean, for those of you that don't know or haven't heard of Chalet Cano, this is very impressive. Ems, how on earth did you rock up and get a job with such a prestigious company and work in, I think, I'm pretty sure I can say at the time, it, whatever, you'll have to work out what year it was, I think it, Chalet Cano, the um, flagship chalet, was the top chalet in Verbier. <laughs> I don't know, yeah, that and Bella Coola which is another one I worked in, but yeah, they ran that as well. But um, it, I think I think probably because I was a bit older, like I was about 20, in my mid to late 20s, I um, had loads of hospitality experience. I'd done a season before, um, just built up a lot of experience in hospitality, basically. There you were. You So you rocked up in Verbier. Had you been to Verbier before? No, I hadn't actually. And it was a completely different kettle of fish to... Bad Meribel, places I'd, I'd, I'd skied before. I was very much a peace skier. And um, and Verbier is just so different, isn't it? It's, you know, lots of private chalets. Um, it's got more of an exclusive feel about it. Amazing off-piste, amazing itinerary runs. It's a, it's a different, it's a just very different vibe to the Three Valleys. And um, so, yeah, it was it was an amazing experience to to work there. I did, um, did one winter uh, and then I went back for another winter. That's for CK. Um and it was fab. And after one of our one of our client one of our um one of our guests who um really liked um me and my boyfriend at the time took us on to work in her properties in the south of France and Paris and London for the summer as well. So kind of we were like hosting and chefing what well, my other half was chefing. <laughs> um so that was a great experience. And then yeah. Very fun. That's so cool. What a setup. And on a personal level in Verbier, uh, how, because you're obviously a, a very good and keen skier, how did you find your skiing changed when you hit Verbier? Yes, definitely. Um, the good thing about being a chalet host is that you get a lot of ski time compared to other jobs in resort. So, yeah, you're free from like 11 till 4 or 5 most days if, you, if you're good at your job and you get things done. But, um yeah so anyway the yeah the skiing in Verbier is totally different I was very much a peace skier um a good skier but a peace skier and Verbier there's quite limited peace aren't they bells you, you'll know that and um mm. but there's a lot of amazing off-piece and itinerary runs and so I was like at first I was like oh, okay what's going and then you just once you once you've you've got that chat you've gone down Tortan and and then you're like okay and then you go off and you do something else and something else and then so yeah they loved it and it definitely changed my skiing amazing really great experience and I know you love a party favorite place in those days to go to go out in Verbier Apre and nightclub well you've got so you've got the Faraday so there's Apre which is half of the Faraday which is called Apre and it goes wild on that side and then the other half is like really posh and it's like cocktails and stuff so that so Apre is every day from what is it like six or something till whatever maybe earlier isn't it early like five till eight which I did find very different um because having done a season in Valdezere Apre starts 
you go to well my god it was like 12 years ago now when I did it but when I did a season in Val Folie Deuce was just starting it was like a new thing and we used to go there every day at three on the dot you know fuck skiing and we didn't really get pissed we just danced on tables but as Shemi was saying last week just you don't you don't actually drink you just give off the impression you like with your guests having a fun time and Folly was, you know, three till five, and then it goes on and on and on and on. But in Verbier, it kind of it's all a bit later. So you go, you'd go home, get changed, then go to Apre. Um, but anyway, Apre is is half a Fauna, so we do that, and then. But there's also La Rouge, isn't there? Which is very similar to Folly. Um, very which fun. Is like three o'clock. So I mean, yeah, La Rouge is amazing. So fun. Okay, so back to your career. Move back to London because I kind of wanted to be a bit UK based and did a travel journalism course as well as an internship at a company called Black Tomato. Um, so I did, I worked there and then I got a job with a boutique chalet company called Fish and Pips who are Mar- were Maribel and Val based and now purely Maribel, Maribel Village. And um, because they're two of my favourite resorts and I did, I was a sales manager for them for about four years after that amazing wait what so So you basically transitioned into two different types of job in the same same industry yeah so still operator side still chalet side in the office side of the chalet company um and they're they're, they're an amazing company it was it was a really lovely experience um girl team all girl team holly and philippa who run it for them um which was great experience and then following that, I thought I would move agent side. So um, got a job with Snow, who are a big agent in London, in Putney. And um, that's like, they have sort of 15 or 20 people in their sales team. It's quite fast paced. And um, that was super interesting. And um, before moving on to LS. And what about going back to your travel journalism? How come you took that course? Where was it? So that was London School of Journalism and I, I've just, I've always loved writing, just thought I could always maybe write, you know, travel journalism has always been a thing I've been interested in. So I just did a, I did a three month course in that, um, just for general sort of use in the future, maybe. Um, Amazing. And, and, um, Emma is, uh, is the official script writer of this podcast. (laughs) Because you are so good at writing. No, but you're. So, I am. You are a natural. I mean, I try and write something, and then I, I'm just like, oh, that's been deleted. That's been deleted. I just leave it to Ems. She's so much better than me. That's anyway, not true, um, that's really cool, though. It's quite. Uh, you've done so many. You've got such a diverse um, skill set. It's amazing that you've done all these different avenues and what yeah, I guess your... it's quite quite nice to have seen yeah because we deal with so many chalet companies as an agent and it's nice to know how they work from their side what about Brexit how's that what's what does that mean for people that want to become a chalet want to work in a chalet next year or the year after well in a lot of ways it's very sad I mean I owe where I am now to being able as we've just discussed to easily just be like right I want to do a ski season okay done 
and you go out there, no visas. You can just go and work in France or anywhere in the EU. So that's not going to happen anymore. It's a, a very complicated process. People who want to go and work abroad will need to you know, get a visa as if you're going to like Canada or something. And the law in France is that if there's not someone who is French that can do that role, then you can have the job if you're English kind of thing. So it's it's just such a complicated process now for the Shelley companies to work around. I mean, it's going to work out, but I think. <laughs> but it's just <laughs> sad because, you know, people have these, you know, if you have no money, you can just go and work there. It doesn't cost anything. It's just an amazing opportunity for everybody to go and have this experience. But now it might not be the case. Will Shelley companies not pay for these visas? Well, I mean, the amount they're going to have to pay for for so many things now with all these changes, it's it's like it's well, if they can, it's going to be the same in France as it is in Switzerland. So a chalet girl will now earn, I think it's like twenty five grand a year on their ski on their ski season because they have to be paid Swiss, uh, sorry French um, minimum wage, which is like a starting salary in London, which is pretty amazing just to be a chalet girl but no chalet company can afford that so how do you work around it but I think it's just, it's going to change the chalet market a lot it's going to be more self-catered because it's not the, the whole catered chalet thing is going to disappear or get much less um companies are going to offer like a flexible kind of thing like you can have a chalet host for something some things if you want and you know they're going to take their take their product just change their product it's going to be very different I think when we come out of covid it's going to be a very different world and it'd be so interesting to see what happens um not necessarily worse not necessarily better we don't know but it's going to be quite different we might it might self-cater departments like more like america like um they don't have the whole chalet girl thing at all out there they find it like amazing when you talk about it um they just have self-catered they have really amazing hotels so maybe it will turn more like that um, a different model yeah so it'll be interesting to see If you could go back and do a ski season next winter and COVID didn't exist, mm. where would you go? Would you go back to Verbier or Val? Or you'd so go back to Val? I don't know if I could handle Val now I'm older. I think I would die. But then you've got family there. Would you want to be near your brother? <sighs> nah. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> Verbier or, or something completely different. Maybe Austria. Maybe Lech. Oh, I'd love to do a season in Lech. Yeah, I'd love to go to Austria and just experience, you know, their app parade. It's so different. It's a, it's completely different, isn't it, to Switzerland and France? Obviously, but um, when, yeah. When I went to Mrs. Your Mrs. Apre, the Queen of Apre, have you been to? But talking Austria, have you been to Crazy Kangaroos? Yeah, and we were terrified. <laughs> oh my God! It's another level, isn't it? completely another level to folly or anywhere i i didn't know what to do with myself i didn't know what to do <laughs> i was just like wow yeah people just and the other one moose yeah yeah okay so that interesting i decided so many winters my first few winters you know yeah i was working and teaching but i was party i was young i was was I didn't go to uni so it was my kind of you know my go crazy time and then you look my first season compared to my last season was totally different by the by the end I was having I was meeting Jojo my friend in Farinay not in the acro bit in the cocktail bit yeah 
um, you know, for a cup of mint tea. And they always used to give us these yummy chocolates or biscuits. Oh, that was it. You know, those singular Toblerone bites you can get in wrappers? And I would always get the white one and she'd always have the, well, anyway, dark chocolate one. But, you know, you'd go from kind of drinking right straight through to these bloody mint teas of Jojo and Brownie and I turned into a bit of a granny and it was all about the skiing and I wasn't going out as much. I think in my first few seasons, I, I didn't watch one evening of TV. You just go out, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I guess if you're a ski instructor, I, just, I never know how ski instructors can go out and and be ski instructors because it's really exhausting mentally, like teaching. And then, yeah. When I was... Yeah, when I was co- when I was teaching at the start, when I was potty, you know, I was teaching a lot of peace, so I was doing a bit of race training for kids. So yeah. I was training, doing race stuff. So actually, it was fine. It was not a high risk or whatever. But I think what stopped me going out was the minute I started coaching freeride and teaching off peace yeah. because the minute I moved to Powder Extreme, I was like, I can't physically go out. <laughs> and this is too dangerous. Anyway, I feel very lucky to now work for to work as an agent and I kind of it kind of incorporates all the things I love and recommending and organizing travel destinations for my clients that I like talking about we would love to hear your thoughts and questions contact us by email at girlsonthepeace at gmail.com and let us know who you want us to bring on as a special guest and what you want us to talk about Please subscribe to the pod wherever you're listening, rate us and write a review to help us get the word out. Bye bye and see you next Monday.